Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. What I'm here to do is not make things easy for people to categorize or headline or announce. What I'm here to do is to experience many things so that I can start building relationship between those things for myself, but also for future weird kids like myself. Hard to describe what Camila Janan Rashid does, and she likes it that way. Much of her work is about a search for knowledge and truth, which includes unlearning ideas that we've grown up with and revisiting history through fragments. She calls herself porous, taking in everything around her. Her art spans photography, installation, sound, text, and more. She created a semi-fictional archive of her own family history and put up billboards with messages like, what have you unlearned today and lower the pitch of your suffering. Her work has been shown around the world and she's won a number of awards, including the prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship. I spoke to Camila about resisting easy definitions, finding confidence, and even about how she's thinking about the future of technology. Camila, welcome to This Being Human. Thank you so much for having me. Camila, you have a show in Chicago right now called Unsown Time. And there's a quote from you in the show notes to the exhibition, and it kind of leaped out at me. It says, how can we be anything but learners in a world that's slowly revealing itself to us? I know you've used that term learner to describe yourself in many different contexts as an artist, as a creative, as a writer. What do you mean when you call yourself a learner? Yeah, I mean, I think that it has been off-putting, particularly when folks want to identify a clear medium or process or theme in my work. Um, And when I say that I'm a learner, that really is coming from a position of humility. It's a recognition that There is literally only so much that we can make sense of or even have access to knowing that we don't know that to be able to make grand statements of certainty just feels (laughs) a bit silly to me. Um, And I think about my family a lot because both of my parents in a lot of ways were very focused on education. And of course, like go to school, get good grades, but really focus on sort of the self-discovery and self-learning process. Um, And I think a lot of that sort of spilled over into my life. And so when I say I'm a learner, I'm like literally in the world 
trying to not so much absorb, but like make contact or graze up against different uh, ideas and mediums and processes and organisms as a way to build um, not a clearer, but a more robust or capacious understanding of the world. And I know that the way that I came into the world uh, through my parents and through Islam had to do with them being in a process of learning themselves. Um, they met in college at UC San Diego in the 70s, became Muslim together. And I have like my dad's notes of when he was studying and I look at those quite frequently. But my mom was also a big reader. And I also look back and think about the times where I sort of watched her read or when you would go to Juma prayer and the imam is delivering the kutbah and she is like sort of whispering to me and commenting. And so there's always this uh, thing of looking at the world and then being sort of the person on the side who's like commenting, annotating, responding, but always being in this sort of state of discovery or learning. Like, I really want to figure it out. Uh, but also, if I don't figure it out, the journey to try to even do that was also enjoyable. Oh, I, I love this image of your parents sort of modeling <laughs> this process of of learning and becoming. I, you know, one of the first things uh, one notices when they go on your website is that you have these fragments of writing from when you were a child, and they're actually like testimonies from you about who you are, and in a way, who you're becoming. And they have such a confidence, Camila. <laughs> Um, firstly, what was the impetus to, to share those? Because they sit right there, right at the top when I read your bio. Before I start reading words, I see these these amazing fragments. Yeah, I mean, I when I look back at my like primary school self of like from the age of like six to maybe eight or nine, I was like, wow, I was a confident little human being. And there are days where I wish that I could go back and grab that part of me because there was sort of an assertiveness about why I'm on this earth and what I'm doing that I think as you get older and encounter more things that confidence or that certainty shifts. But I grew up in East Palo Alto, which is a small city in the peninsula in Northern California. And it's known for everything, uh, including its proximity to Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> uh, it is known for tech companies. It is known for violence. It's known for a lot of things. But I think the one thing that it's not known for is this period from the late 60s to the early 80s of all these different educational experiments where folks in my community literally got together and created the at that time, if I remember correctly, the only Black-run school system in the nation. Wow. And I wasn't around for that time, but I've gone through the history. I've talked to people, and I feel like my schooling experience sort of like riffed on elements and the sort of the residue of that experience. And so in primary school, there was like literally an older woman in a trailer, and you could go to her uh, during lunch, and you could just make books. She had like a coil buying machine. She had all this like cardstock that had been discarded that we could sort of cut down. She had papers, she would typewrite things. And I spent so much time there because I was so fascinated by the idea of like going to libraries and taking someone else's book off the shelf. And so for me, I was like, so I can put a book on the shelf that I wrote and then other people will read. Like there's something that was so transformative about not being a passive consumer and being an active producer of knowledge or negotiator of knowledge. And so I think the confidence that I had as a six and seven year old has now transformed into sort of this like measured curiosity where there's some things that I'm certain about, but at the same time, I always want to leave enough space for other things to sort of come in and sort of change or augment or like radically shift my worldview. But yeah, 
I just like text. I know it feels like a corny thing to say, but I just love writing and I love reading and I love the exchange that happens when you like dive and immerse in a piece of text. And I love the process of creating worlds as a writer that you then offer to someone else. And as Umberto Eco always talks about, then those people create these ghost chapters and these inferential walks alongside the text. So it feels like this long thread of like, continuation or even a palimpsest or something about this relationality between the writing of something and how people are going to engage with it over time. Camila's first solo show was for a project called No Instructions for Assembly. It's a sort of semi-fictional family archive. She doesn't have a lot of photographs of her family. They lost their home at one point, and with it, a lot of family artifacts and family history were gone. For the project, she cobbled together photographs she found at garage sales, original photography, books, magazines, and more, to try to create something that feels like a family archive. She's called the project an attempt to conjure her family back into existence. That was at Real Artways, and I remember applying for this, like, new artist, never had a solo show, and I applied for this project, and I got it, and so I had this space to create this exhibition, and I've always been interested in my family's history and had done some other work, mostly collage-based, where I was thinking about my family's history in relation to our houselessness, which was a period where we had to leave our home and to go to a family member's home, and that caused a lot of conflict, you lose a lot of things. And so since I was very young, I had this very anxious relationship to memory and a very anxious relationship to material culture because some of it was lost or some of it was damaged. And as a person who is the descendant of enslaved people, also not being able to reach back to sort of make sense of like who I am. And this person um, and my nan passed away uh, in March and she was the eldest person uh, left in our family. And so she was this holder of all this history. And it was really sad. I mean, sad for a lot of reasons, but in a lot of ways sad because it was sort of like all these stories die with her. And so for the past couple of months, I've been in this like deep, deep genealogical research. But I think when I use this language of conjuring up, I'm thinking about like, how do people who are dispossessed of land, dispossessed of culture, displaced, make sense of family history when you can only sort of engage with fragments. And I didn't want to make this some like, uh, how do I say this? This like, aggressively affective emotional thing about displacement uh, because I think there's a place for that work too. Uh, But this was sort of like, how do I create almost a layered space of objects, of images, of feelings, of things in a space where they provide almost like an index to other things. They are an index to other things that maybe I can't get access to, but I still want to note the possibility of their existence. And so I may not have the full history, but at least I can point and say that something is over there. And I can sort of annotate that something may be here. Entering into your work is entering into a world of fragments. But in an interesting way, Camila, for me as a as someone experiencing your work, it doesn't feel fragmentary, if you know what I mean. What you do and what's so remarkable and compelling to me is that you take those fragments and you build 
that kind of dark matter between them. And the other thing is that it doesn't feel fixed. And maybe that's something about memory, right? That memory is not fixed as as you're describing your own journey to discover the roots and the stories of your family. It really feels like this thing called memory is moving, evolving, reshaping constantly. I mean, Camila, you must always have to be on. Like you got to be on to that. Like you got to be you got to be tuned into that. It's a lot. That's a lot to hold. Yeah. Um I am excited about the reference to dark matter because there was a point where I thought that I was going to become a scientist because I had a really amazing science teacher from like maybe 3rd to 5th grade and he was the first like real scientist that I met and he was this black man who loved marine biology and he would take me and other students on trips to like collect water samples. So I was like very interested in the sciences. And so when you made this reference to dark matter, it got me excited about quantum physics. And I was just like, yes. Cause I think that for me, I've done shows where people ask questions like, oh, do you see any conflict between your interests in the sciences and Islam? And I'm like, no. Please explain to me where you see the conflict because it's I so, think that, so true, so true. I was like, if you could actually read the Quran as a, as a scientific text from everything from just like life cycles to like the basics of like celestial mechanics and orbiting, like it's it's there. And so I think that for me, this sort of notion of wanting to draw connections um, and this dark matter and sort of like the ecology of my work feels very important because I'm not really interested in making work about science and I'm not really interested in making work about Islam, but what I'm interested in is the ethos of these traditions influencing the way that I think about my work, how I engage audiences with my work, how I sort of uh, develop methodologies for my work. And I think the methodology that I sort of like go in with is the sense that like on one hand, Allah constantly reminds us that like, as soon as there's that uh, verse in Sadat al-Kaf 109, where it's like, if the oceans were ink for the words of my Lord, sooner would the ocean be exhausted before the words of my Lord. And whenever I give lectures, I often will begin somewhere around there because I want to remind folks that as soon as we think we know everything, that we've captured everything, there's like a million more things to unfold and pull back the layers from. And so I think in terms of methodology, there's like this like aggressive curiosity about the world, but also this humility that what I learned yesterday could be like overturned the next day. And so this dark matter reference is, is beautiful to me because it's something that we're still trying to make sense of. And I also have been reading a lot, obviously. And when you said I must always be on, I am always on. Uh, <laughs> uh, last year, I got like a um, ADHD diagnosis, which is wild when you're almost 40 for someone to be like, so just so you know, your brain works like this and other people's brains work like this. And you just, you know, you just didn't know. And so it's been interesting to sort of like think about the way that my brain works, which is like constantly desiring sort of like building connections, having poor sensory gating. So I'm taking in tons of stimuli. I'm a lucid dreamer. So it's almost like I'm constantly processing information. And so I think one way that I make my work is through this methodology of like, I'm constantly processing, processing, processing. And the object you see in the space is literally what I was able to put into a form that was tangible for other people. But there's still a lot more going on. This is just the form that was possible for the work, if that makes sense. 
but it's not final because I'm going to revise it. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and it's really beautiful what you just said about all of this just kind of being baked into you, faith, science, art, craft, understanding the world. And I, and I think in some ways that's what makes your work particularly interesting and draws us in is that it's really hard to categorize. And it is because you're all of those things. And Camila is bringing all of herself into this moment. And we're just capturing that moment. On one end, um, having a process that is not query categorizable or sort of shifts based upon my curiosity means that I'm like a moving target in a sense, right? You can't say like Camila is a text-based artist because I do work with text, but I also code and I also paint and I also teach. Uh, I also do stand-up, I also do improv. Like I'm doing a bunch of things because part of my time on this earth, I just wanna try different things and see how they fit. And so I can't actually put a boundary around that. And so uh, there is a sense of confidence that like what I'm here to do is not make things easy for people to categorize or headline or announce. What I'm here to do is to experience many things so that I can start building a relationship between those things for myself, but also for future weird kids like myself. The confidence that you see now was like the cause of booing as a child because eight, nine, 10 year olds don't get the the kid who like wants to code and read weird books and like dig up worms and like also like is interested in meteors and is like feeding, uh, you know, mice to the hawks that come like that's confusing. Right. As I've grown older, it's a bit of a strange reversal for the things that I was often isolated or alienated for to become the things that people know me for and invite me to do. And this past show in Berlin, the one at uh, K, I have to do it correctly, Kava Institute, also known as KW, it was part of this artist research award. And that award meant so much to me because, uh, and I remember crying at the award ceremony uh, because people gave laudatory speeches and then I just started crying like a baby because I'd never heard people really like talk about my work. And so I think that what feels good to me and the most current iterations of my life is feeling seen without the pressure for legibility. I often say I'm opaque to myself and I've been reading a lot of Clarice Lispector's work and she constantly talks about her own opaqueness to herself. And so I just think that if you are opaque to yourself, how can I promise anything of transparency or legibility to anyone else? Like I'm figuring out me, but you want me to package myself and give it to you in a neat package? If I could do that, I'd give it to myself. But I can't do that. So what you get is this sort of like mess, but it's a mess not because of a lack of care. It's a mess because literally life is messy. And there was a point where we didn't have academic disciplines and academic fields that people lived interconnected, interdisciplinary lives. And they weren't like, I'm going to go do science now. And then I'm going to go do math. And then I'm going to do history. People were just living. And that knowledge was integrated. And so I think that there's a part of my practice that hopes to return to this integrated networked sort of sense of learning and being in the world where we're not trying to like compartmentalize different facets of like existing in the pursuit of like legibility or clear understanding. That point about legibility to me really hits the mark in so many ways because it also, you know, when, when we're not immediately legible, it also means that we are 
a process and we're greater than the sum of our parts and we're not linear. And you use this language a lot, Camila, the language of ecosystem. It's like you represent yourself as an ecosystem. And, and there's something in the materials that you use that emerges as part of an ecosystem. You, you're using photographic chemicals. You're using, you know, photographic paper. You're using Vaseline. You're using ink. You're using rubbing alcohol. You're using mimeograph. You're uh, cutting fragments from text and from books. And all these disparate elements come together to create the piece. And then you do something that I don't fully understand, and I hope you'll explain to me. You add your body to that. And then something remarkable happens. What is going on with all that? If you look across my work, figuration sort of stops in 2013. And I still have a complex uh, relationship to figuration and representation. And someone asked me about this in Berlin and they were like, why do you? And I was like, I think it's because I grew up in a Muslim household where my dad was like, no, 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 no statues. No, 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 no. God is not a person on a, in the image. So our house was mostly full of text, the things that littered my home, they were printed matter. And so my relationship to my body was not so much like a photograph uh, or an image of me as a person, but it almost became the situation of what residue of human existence is left on printed matter. So like looking across things and seeing spilled coffee or seeing oil marks or seeing a torn page or seeing like something that was in a basement that's chewed up by a map, like all these things that sort of indicate presence and acting upon the printed matter was sort of how I started to relate to representation and figuration, that the figure doesn't have to be in the frame, but there are residues, elements, indices of human interaction um, that don't necessarily need to be shown. And so when I was making this work for the show in Chicago, a bunch of different things were like happening literally with my, with my body. My nan had passed away, which was his own full like process of like jumping out of my body and jumping back in. I also got COVID and it was like a really bad case. And like these hives went crazy. I learned that I had this thing called oral allergy syndrome, which makes me like allergic to like most fruits because my brain interprets raw fruit enzymes as a birch tree. All these things were happening in my body that basically created like welts or markings on my skin. Um, I also learned that I had like a, a pigmentation disorder, just like a lot of things were happening in a compressed period of time. And my therapist always talks to me about when icky things come up to sort of identify a stance of curiosity. So instead of like being like, oh, that sucks, she was like, okay, what can we learn about this? Uh, how, what does a stance of curiosity look like? And so my stance of curiosity was basically trying to explore methods of writing with one's body. That when I make a print, I could, of course, use a printing press or, or an etching press to create the impression, to provide the weight. It's an even weight, it's evenly distributed. A piece of metal is doing it. And so I wanted to think about if I want to write or include my body in my work, but I don't actually want to write text, letters, Latin alphabet, and I don't want to include my face, what could I produce? And so I thought about my body in the way that owing my body because of weight distribution, because of the context of my living space, because of the humidity of my apartment, my body can only produce these types of marks. And so I became interested in the notion of our body and signature and got really interested in the body as something that can both be printed upon and can 
print, right? And so if you think about sitting in a chair and the marks that are left on your legs because of the chair as these temporary markings. I was watching all the videos of Hajj during the height of the pandemic because only a few people were allowed to go. And I became really interested in like the markings that are left behind by folks who are going on their pilgrimage from their feet and from the indentations on the ground from that circumambulation. I got really excited because I saw this uh, Instagram post of this prayer rug that the fabric had worn off in the place where his hands and arms were in sojourn. And I got so excited about this idea that a prayer rug could hold writing from someone's body. The erosion is an indication, right? That indeed writing has occurred. And I think about my dad's prayer rugs and how degraded. And I was like, he he just didn't buy new prayer rugs. And I think secretly, he just liked the idea of being able to have that record. So I just started thinking about all these things, tree rings, uh, leaf ineation, uh, snail slime, spider webs, lichen, all these sort of modes of writing that are not dependent on this notion that I'm taking a pen to paper, but that the substrate can be different. And so that was a long-winded way to say that for the show in Chicago, I was grappling with all those ideas. I'm still grappling with them. And I'm really interested in our insistence around written history versus oral history particularly within African diaspora cultures of oral tradition, but also Islamically, like the revelations came orally (laughs) and then they were written down. And so even that whole process from oral to written, and so I'm really interested in sort of this engagement with the oral to written, written to oral, and our insistence on one form being better, or the idea that both forms need to be permanent. You speak about dreaming and lucid dreaming in particular, you know, these dreams that kind of force us to question what is real and and what is not. Camilla, I won't lie when I sometimes feel that as we're moving through the visual world and particularly digital visual spaces, I feel really imbalanced because I think we've entered into a world where... I mean, there's a constant adjudication that we're making as to what is quote unquote real and what is not, and both are lucid. And, and, you know, you've been speaking about the destructive possibilities of AI, artificial intelligence for a few years now. And I know you, you raised the alarm about this and deep concern a few years ago uh, as we were entering into the pandemic. And, and you were asking some, some pretty serious questions, which now feel like everyone is talking, <laughs> right? Everyone's talking about it. We're, we're in the middle of this big conversation about the way AI platforms operate and particularly the way that they use literature and visual art and the latest science. You know, a friend of mine who works in the field was recently telling me about ways in which we're now capturing images that emerge in our brains because we can translate the electrical pulses of our neurons into images. Now, what happens when your lucid dreams get incorporated into the algorithm? I mean, it's um, there's something going on at this moment that feels really unsteady. Yeah. So what I will say as an autobiographical note, growing up 
and what is now considered Silicon Valley meant that I had a lot of early exposure to emerging technologies, a lot of early exposure to sort of like the Silicon Valley mindset, a lot of early contact with like the relationship between like neoliberalism, multiculturalism, progress, and like tech evangelism. And as a young person, I was part of a program called Plugged In, which was basically supporting um, young people in my city, low-income students, students of color, and like understanding more about the internet age. And so we were like on the internet and like I was coding at 11 and 12. We were making websites and doing design for local nonprofits and it was like a real thing. And so I remember at that young age, the thing that was so exciting about the internet was like the mystery that you could click something and it could send you somewhere and you don't know where you're going. And there was a sense of like unpredictability or like this sort of like space of like mystery and curiosity you could sort of dive into. And so I think that what's interesting about this current period, at least for me, is that the things that I enjoy most about the internet, the things that I enjoy most about life mystery have been taken from us because if everything that I'm thinking can just be translated into a form, then I have no reason to even engage with you. I have no reason to engage with the world. I have no reason to like get up in the morning and to think about how this is connected to this. The sort of like easy access to everything means that we don't go through the learning that will be circuitous and send us off on tangents that ultimately like broadens our world, right? And so the AI stuff was so interesting to me because I was engaged in these conversations with myself and with my siblings and being so interested in how fast everything was moving, but the critique wasn't moving at the same pace as the development and release of the technology. And so I think that my sort of uh, warning or anxiety about AI and machine learning always starts from the same place of around interiority and surveillance. Because the thing that I always say about my work too is that I'm taking whatever I can out of myself and offering it up. But that also means that I always keep something for myself too. I want to be able to return to something that only is for me. And I feel like what is happening now with machine learning and artificial intelligence is that we're being asked to relinquish our full interiority, not because we're building better relationships, not because this is going to open up some new peaceful landscape, but literally because it is a moneymaker. And so I think the relationship between capitalism, artificial intelligence, and subjugation um, is too heavy for me to not say things about. And so I've spent the past couple of years learning, literally like, I don't want to talk conceptually about this. I'm going to learn as much as I can. I did this short fellowship with Google where I learned a lot. And it was important for me to really be like, before I speak, <laughs> do you know what you're talking about? Before I critique, do you know what you're talking about? And I'm like, yeah, I do know what I'm talking about. This is bad news, guys. Stop sending your photo to random people who are just going to use that in perpetuity. It has never been beneficial to hand over this much interior dialogue to anyone. <laughs> and so I, I think that my interiority is what makes me human, is what creates my complexity. And for someone to ask that that becomes part of a data set in some way crushes me at like a political level and a spiritual level. Um, and it makes me wonder then what do people get up in the morning to do? Because the mystery has been solved for you. What are you doing on the planet? Camila, tell me about a joy or a meanness that came as a recent unexpected visitor. 
Yeah, I feel like in the spirit of generosity, I'll share this too. In 2021, I filed for divorce. And I think that when I got married in 2017, divorce was never on my mind. And it was a a rude, it was very rude. Uh, It was a very, um, I wouldn't say unexpected. That's for another thing. But it it was a rude entry point, a rude moment. But I think that without that moment, without making that decision, without following through, without doing all the paperwork, going to all the offices to do that, I would not have known that I could do hard and uncomfortable things. Camilla, Janan, Rashid, thank you for being on This Being Human. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can check the show notes for links to Camila's work. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Our executive producers are Laura Roguer and Stuart Cox. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shagunrag Tajvidi is TVO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of This Being Human.